Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 71 of the Citrix Session. I'm your host, Andy Whiteside. We've got a, another good group with us, of course, as usual. Uh, looking forward to talking through this topic and gleaming some insight into how certain parts of the world and certain verticals are handling the pandemic, specifically as it relates to working remotely, working hybrid, working with Citrix. Uh, Bill Sutton, Director of Services, as almost every week, is with us. Bill, how's it going? Going well, Andy. Doing, doing fine. Thanks. How are you? I'm good. I know we have this call right after our, this recording, right after our management meeting every week. And uh, sounds like you guys are getting busier and busier. We certainly are. It's a good thing. Looking forward to keeping it going. So I ask you this all the time. Is this pent up demand from projects that were on hold? Is this people reacting to the pandemic? Uh, is just just normal? Uh, I think it is pent up. Um, some of it's pent up demand. Some of it's just normal. I don't know that we're seeing a lot of pandemic related projects. Uh, it's it's. Uh, mostly pent up demand, things that were put on hold last year, and as well as just new stuff, people wanting to move, you know, seeing the benefits that the, that, that other companies got out of, out of virtualizing their workloads, um, you know, during the pandemic and wanting to take advantage of that and, and do it themselves. Yeah. Well, our special guests can probably relate to some of this uh, consulting type conversations here in a minute. I, you know, it's interesting for me, I, I meet people like just this weekend, probably three or four people at various functions kind of told them what I do. And they all said, oh, you mean your world must be blowing up. Uh, and I think it's interesting to have the common person who know, doesn't know our inter- industry uh, make the make the connection between what we do and, and what needs to happen next. So that that's going to be interesting. And we'll, we'll we'll talk to our guests here in a minute, ago, uh, in a minute about that. Ben Rogers. Local sales engineer, Ben, how's it going? I'm doing well, Andy. It's good to be back. I missed the last two episodes, so I apologize, but thank you for having me back in the mix here. Well, we know you're busy and we know you have other other work to do, other responsibilities. So anytime you can make it, you're always welcome. And I'm, I'm looking forward I appreciate to that. So I can uh, hand you this Raspberry Pi from iGel. I think it would be a good, I'm using it in the background on my uh, little two monitor setup over here. And I'm, I'm shocked as to how well it works in a virtual desktop world. Well, I already have a purpose for it, Andy. I've got a flat screen TV that's coming from the back of my office, similar to what you've got in your office. And I plan on using that Raspberry Pi as the interface into that TV. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Yes, that's what's behind me. Well, actually, I got a full-blown thin client, but I'm going to replace it with a Raspberry Pi uh, when I get some free time. So, guys, uh, with us from Citrix, we have Mark Sweeney. Mark wrote a, a blog, I don't know, several weeks ago, maybe longer now, uh, talking about you know, the, the new world of work, uh, specifically in higher education. Mark, um, a lot of Sweeney's at Citrix. I don't know if we need to go into that joke right here, right now, but uh, can you give us uh, your background and your responsibilities at Citrix these days? Sure thing. So um, I've been with Citrix for the past 21 years, mm-hmm. uh, primarily in the customer success part of the industry and in the uh, in the Americas. Recently, I've moved out to the uh, to the UK. Uh, started the role in uh, in January, leading our UK and Ireland team from uh, from a country manager perspective. You know that's interesting. Um... Uh, I got to be careful when I talk about different turfs, but I I, I have this dream of doing uh, Zintegra in the in the UK at some point. Uh, so I'd maybe catch up with you at some at some point about what it would look like to have a a Zintegra like partner over there. Absolutely, absolutely, and I appreciate you having me today. This is uh, this is a topic that I've I've often been interested in. It's one that I've often thought about. And uh, when I started writing the uh, when I started writing the blog around it. Um, it, it certainly it certainly fulfilled a few things that I've been trying to accomplish as part of the uh, as part of the new role. Well, so let me give the uh, the listeners the name. It's why we need a hybrid model in higher education. I work with a lot of higher education. I don't work as, with as much as I would like to, but um, the Citrix story 
has resonated with higher education for two decades now, and it's becoming more and more uh, in line with what that type of organization needs uh, in order to ex extend their ability, extend their reach. Uh, but at this point, just 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 to work at this point to um, to be able to handle the pandemic type scenario. I've got two kids going off to college. I'm highly involved in other kids off in school. I, it's a very dynamic use case and responsibility and need uh, without a doubt. You want to, you want to kind of intro the, um, the blog by telling us what you're covering here in the, in the intros, a uh, couple paragraphs. Yeah, sure. So I, I think as a whole, what I'm trying to get across here is that uh, we, we've often talked about the future of work and what work might look like in 2035. But I think one of the things that I'm really trying to drive some some thought around is what could education look like in, two thir in 2035? Um, and especially when we exit the pandemic, what is, what is post-pandemic life for students going to look like? Are we going to have a consistent experience where uh, students are, are studying from home? Are they studying from the campus? Do we have the right tools available for them? How do we maintain uh, a campus-like culture? You know, one that is not only uh, not only when you can actually attend classes in person, but what can you do um, when you're offsite to try and maintain that uh, collaboration that you have with your activities? You know, we see a lot of the we see a lot of the companies right now looking at collaborative work workplaces for um, you know for their work, and then you know doing some of the the real physical work. You know, from uh, you know, from home. You know, is there is there a type of experience like that for for students? You know, in the foreseeable future. And I'm trying to trying to create some of those thoughts right now and and get folks thinking about that as we um, as we move on to uh, a post pandemic life. You know, Mark, the uh, the litmus test for me on that one historically pre pandemic has always been the concept of the big computer lab and whether or not at an organization at a, at a university. Uh, whether that was growing or shrinking, and, and many of the ones I've been working with the last couple of years, it's been shrinking. Uh, but when you walk into an organization where they're growing that, where students are having to come to that one or two or 10 locations on campus and work from these high-end computers that have all been deployed that are just sitting there for the most part, not doing anything most of the time. Uh, but then in, you know, exam, exam week or uh, in certain parts of the semester, there, you know, there's a waiting list or a line to get to those guys. Is that part of, what your history in this space has 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 um, <clears throat> kind of shown you is whether an organization's investing in that concept or getting or, or collapsing that concept and working it remotely. So I think historically, you know, the the investment that I saw was very similar to what you you know what you just experienced. So you know, we would see a number of you know a number of labs, you know, for lack of a better word, where they would have computers set up where they would be doing the work, whether it's on you know, workstation devices or thin client-like devices, you would see that contract, you would see it expand. I think where, where I'm, I'm looking for right now is, you know, is there a way for students to be able to access those types of software applications, access the labs, access the courses, you know, without necessarily having to go in? You know, is it something they can do from their, from their own site while, while maintaining the honor code that they're looking for from a university perspective and that sort of thing? Yeah, that's a whole nother topic. I, uh, you know, I have firsthand knowledge of, again, freshmen, sophomores in college, as well as high school seniors and watching them take advantage of the, um, the uh, lee leeway that you get from doing this remotely and 
uh, you know, having the world of the internet available to them as they take a test potentially. Uh, yeah, that's, that, that's a whole another topic. Yeah. I mean, I think the, I think the exam piece of it is, is something that is, that's going to require a lot of thinking. And I think that's where, you know, that, that's where I'm going with these, you know, with this blog is when we think about, when we think about corporations and we think about the pandemic, you know, I, for years we've talked about, you know, pandemic being a potential, a potential scenario, you know, where Citrix and virtual working would be a very good place. We never really thought it would come to fruition until, uh, until, you know, last year. Um, but they were for the most part, I think, relatively prepared, you know, they were able to move very quickly to, uh, you know, to a work from home model. You know, when you look at, when you look at education, higher ed was in a better place. You know, I think lower education, there were some more challenges, but, you know, even from a higher education perspective, you know, there was some heavy lifting, you know, that was required. And if you look at some of the data, you know, some of the, uh, some of the students are actually saying that they don't feel that their universities were as prepared as they could have been. Um, I think they did the best they could, you know, given the situation that they were faced with. But I, I think we're at the point now where we need to start thinking about a different modality around around learning, you know. And what we do on the um, on the exam side is is absolutely a separate side. But even even the learning itself, you know, is there a model that we can look at where um, where we have a split on campus offsite experience? Yeah, I was listening to. Um... Uh, a, a webinar uh, with Citrix and Reich Systems, um, a Reich, uh, over the weekend, and they actually talked about higher education. And I actually have highlighted here on the screen the fact that this survey was done in the UK. Which, in my mind, this is probably naive, but in my mind, you know, higher education has a lot of its roots in the United Kingdom and that part of the world. Um, and you know, having them talk that for 400 years or more, you know, we've done education a certain way. That means it has a lot of legacy to have to overcome with technologies. And as you're pointing out here, especially historical institutions, uh, that's that's a big shift in the way they go about doing their primary thing. It, it absolutely is. And um, if you look at, you know, within that blog, there's actually a link to uh, that recent survey of UK universities. So if you if you're in that blog and you wanted to click onto it, you know, you could um, you could actually see a survey of the actual universities. And, you know, I, I probably not the oldest school, but one of the uh, one of the most prestigious schools, you know, is uh, University of Cambridge. And they're one of our you know, larger customers in the UK as it relates to, you know, higher ed and what they're doing from a, uh, you know, from a Citrix perspective. And I actually had the opportunity to speak with the, uh, you know, with one of the a couple of the VPs within uh, within Cambridge around this topic and around how how higher education is going to look like you know, next year. And there, there's a lot of discussion now because if you've actually ever been to Cambridge, it's a very beautiful place. The architecture is amazing. And going to King's College is just, you know, one of the one of the greatest experiences you could have. And I brought up the point is, you know, part of the attraction of going to Cambridge is not just the education that you're getting, but the the actual experience of sitting in the Howard Hall of, uh, of King's College, you know, getting a getting an education. And even Cambridge right now is looking at and how they can how they can potentially look at a, at a model, you know, around, uh, you know, around this uh, around this new model. Yeah. Hey, let me pause here and uh, go over to, to Ben real quick. Ben, any any universities you've been working with that you've kind of had a similar type of uh, what are we going to do now uh, kind of moment since the pandemic happened? And Ben, you might be on mute. Hey, Bill, Can you hear me? 
Yeah, we can hear you. Go ahead. Sorry about that. Okay. Um, one of the things that I know has rocked the higher education arena here lately is security. Uh, you've heard the, a lot of uh, universities getting hit with ransomware. And when you start to peel back the onion on why ransomware was able to get in there, you're starting to see that it's legacy student logins. So, you know, talking to this conversation, when I saw this, one of my first thoughts were, you know, higher education is having to adjust how they're delivering their resources to students and the faculty, but they're also having to deal with this world where they might not be able to have, you know, students just loaded into their authentication systems like they have before. Like some of the universities we talked to, and they've explained when they've gone back and looked at root causes of these uh, ransomware attacks, they're like, you know, we have students that, you know, it's not like a student comes and then they don't come and they don't come anymore. A student might come and be with us for a year or two, and then they might take a break, then they might come back. And from a security perspective, you know, I could see where that would be a little bit of a, you know, dance on rice paper because when will the student be in? When will the student not be back? Will everything, you know, if you disable their accounts, would everything come back in when they were re, you know, brought back into the system? So that's an interesting scenario that the universities are going to have to face is how do they keep their student population in their authentication systems and yet guard them from being uh, an item that could be attacked? And then one of my other thoughts is, you know, what Mark has kind of alluded to, and, and you also, Andy, is, you know, the testing piece of remote learning. There's part of me that's thinking that learning in itself is going to be in a transition over the next four to five years as we realize that Students don't need to be on site anymore, but they still need to be connected and there still needs to be a way to verify that it was them doing this work. And those are going to be some interesting challenges for universities to have to face because fortunately, you know, in the workplace, you either do the work or you don't. And, you know, you better hope you do your work and you better hope you know your job because you don't, you won't get fired. In a university setting, you're kind of paying to be there. And so that's going to be a little bit of an interesting predicament for them to work out that commercial, in my opinion, don't necessarily have to face. Yeah. And, and Mark, at some point in this conversation, uh, get your comments on the fact that this is actually a gift uh, when it comes to the universities, because they've been trying to break out of the four walls for a long time. Uh, and now this kind of forces it to happen. Yeah, it's actually been part of the conversations I've, I've been having with a few of the different um, colleges and universities throughout the UK. You know, they're they're looking at this as a you know, as an opportunity to extend what they've been trying to do on the on the virtual front, and then also even on the on the security front that Ben was just speaking to. If you, if you in that uh, in that article that I was I was referring to, that's that's linked in here. You'll actually see some of the data around the number of the number of uh, ransomware attacks you know that have happened within the uh, within UK you know higher education institutes you know there was something like 40 plus you know ransomware attacks that occurred and because of that you know they've actually been able to increase the amount of training that the staff you know have received on um, you know on IT systems you know before it was less than half of the staff would actually get training to now more than half. So they're finally starting to see now, you know, the importance of security around, you know, around the environment. So, and, and, a, and a subsequent one that I saw was around five, only about 5% of students, you know, actually receive training on, on security. So I think this, this aspect of, you know, once we go to this virtual model, you know, how do we protect and how do we secure the platforms that everybody's operating on? Folks are starting to see that it's, it's incredibly important to it. Yeah, you got to be more open, more accessible, but at the same time, 
understand where the security elements fit. And Bill, let's give you a chance to chime in here. Any thoughts on higher ed and how it's kind of coming to us after all these years and looking for what, what it is we've been talking about? Bill, you might be on mute. Granted, it's in the U.S. Thank you, Andy. Um, but I've done a number of projects um, with with universities, small colleges and universities in the U.S. where they implemented remote access, if you will, solutions, Citrix-oriented solutions to provide lab access to students, to provide access to certain sets of applications to students. That's a significantly different than plot than providing the overall whole learning environment to students. But I'm interested, Mark, from your survey in the UK, universities that had already implemented that, did they find that it was an easier or more difficult shift from that kind of remote access for students to the full cycle of learning um, that came about as a result of the pandemic? Yeah, I would say right now, on a, if we're thinking just virtual, you know, virtual workspace, I think they're still going through you know, how to, you know, how to work with students. You know, the majority that we're seeing right now is within, uh, within administrators and within, uh, within teachers. That's where, that's where the predominant piece is. Uh, you know, when we talk, like, the, the section that we have on here right now around creating the consistent on-campus and off-site experience, what, uh, you know, what we're, what we're speaking to there is, you know, how do we, how do we create a, how do we create a, a, um, an approach where, you know, the students who are on site, because there is going to be a time when there are going to be students on site and students off site. Can we ever get to a point where students can be on site, students can be off site and being able to ensure that, you know, the level of experience is the same right. for all of them. And I think that's going to be the more, the more difficult piece in terms of how do we, how do we keep, create that consistency? I think whether they're, you know, I've seen a lot of, a lot of the educators I see now are using Zoom. You know, I'm actually I'm actually in higher education myself right now. I'm I'm getting my master's from the University of Miami, and um, it is also a uh, you know a hybrid approach. You know, where there are some on site, some on you know on a uh, you know on a Zoom you know type platform, and it has been challenging. You know, for the students. You know, I can I can say that personally. Yeah, I would, it seems to me that if and I, I noticed that when I looked at the survey a few minutes ago while while y'all were talking. That one of the one of the key things, at least from where I sit, is when when you're dealing with a hybrid situation, the the one thing that with the remote learners that's probably uh, most concerning is the ability for distractions. Yeah. Um, whereas if they're sitting in the classroom, obviously they're they're more focused, they're they're tuned in. Uh, I know this is the case with my own children who are you know in middle school and elementary school. Uh, my son spends a lot of his time when he's between classes playing video games which is an obvious distraction, uh, despite, you know, lamentations not to do so. Um, and I, I imagine that that's probably not as prevalent with college students. Maybe it is. Um, but that's certainly a consideration that uh, that I know that needs to be addressed. Yeah. And it, 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 again, in that um, it, around that topic, if you actually look at it, you know, probably about only about half of the students, you know, would actually say that the that the relationship that they have with their teacher is the same as it was before they, right. you know, before they went on the pandemic. So a lot of them are actually saying that I've lost that one-on-one -on -one connection, connection, you know, with my professor, you know, during that time. And it's really just becomes that talking head because there's the one person in front of, you know, seven or eight people. You can't even, you know, have a conversation, you know, even that, you know, I talk about incidental contact all the time. Mm -hmm. Even when you leave the, uh, when you leave the classroom, just being able to ask a two minute question one-on-one -on -one with the teacher. So you don't have to say it in front of, 
nine other people, that doesn't occur anymore. Right. Or waiting behind a little bit later after class for a couple of minute conversation, that piece, that piece can't occur right now. Yeah. And I think that's where some of the challenges are occurring. And the question is, is how do we fix that? Yeah, exactly. So guys, when this first started happening, what's I told schools and um, go ahead, Ben, I'm sorry, you had a, a point? What's interesting about, you know, hearing this, I've got a 10 year old and he's facing all of these same things. So, man, this, this conversation right now is not only, you know, what's plaguing higher education, this is what's plaguing all of education and, and how do we move forward? Because, you know, to Mark's point, you know, my little boy, he has a one-on-one with his teacher, but that's usually later in the afternoon. And sometimes he struggles with things in the moment and he's not to the age where he can, you know, compartmentalize those things and go, okay, well, let me come back to it. And so these little 15 minute meetings that he has with his teachers, I tend to think to myself, he's not getting the most that he could if he could ask the question at the moment he was having the problem. So uh, I'm glad education is paying attention to that. I'm glad we're seeing that. But man, that's being seen more than just in the higher education. That's rippling through all of education, this teacher-student interaction and how that has changed in, during the pandemic. Yeah. And I think, I think higher education needs to lead the way You know, with regards to that. I think there's more funding in, in higher education through tuition coming in from students. You know, there's more, um, you know, there's more maturity with the students, you know, and being able to, Absolutely. to, to switch platforms. But I think higher ed needs to lead the way for primary and secondary because I, I see the same thing. I have a nine-year-old and a five-year-old. You know, they've been doing the, the, the virtual learning as well. They're, they're facing the same challenges that, uh, that the higher ed students are. But I, the reason why I, I place a lot of the responsibility, so to speak, in the, in the higher education space is just because of the level of funding and maturity that they have from a, from a student perspective. And if we can solve, you know, if we can solve this within the higher ed space, then we can perhaps start to roll that out into primary and secondary. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Hey, Mark, I've had a couple of business conversations with universities or maybe just people in that industry that are um, kind of studying it. How do you think this compares for like a, a higher unit, higher education university? It's probably one of the tier one schools, you know, has a, a nice, beautiful historic campus, has uh, a lot of appeal for being on campus versus the maybe those mid-tier schools that are maybe um you know don't have that uh iconic campus feel i was under the impression that a big chunk of that second tier schools are probably not going to survive this uh are those the ones that you're seeing that are being more aggressive to try to use technology to circumvent uh the the lack of maybe desire that for students to come on campus and i, I just finished college tours a year ago with with my twins and you know there's some schools where you walk on campus and it's like this this aura of your own campus and then there's some you you can barely tell you're even on a campus you know i, I think it's going to be um i think both tiers of schools are going to face different challenges and i think they're both going to be um they're going to be both impacted in some way, shape, or form. When you look at some of those tier one schools that you just mentioned, um, a lot of those tier one schools pull in students that are that are international. You know, they'll be pulling in students from from China. They'll be pulling in from Japan. They'll pull them in from Europe. Same thing in the UK. They'll pull in from other countries as well. You know, I, I've got to think that some of those you know some of those uh, admissions are kind of dwindling right now just because the amount of travel is not happening. Yeah. So I think when I look at when I look at some of the tier schools that you mentioned, you know, are they are they shifting? I've seen this shift occur 
you know, insane proportions across tier ones, tier twos, tier threes. It's it's kind of occurring, and it's always occurring for different reasons. You know, some of the some of the different uh, topics that you know I'm seeing are are how do we how do we engage some of the technical platforms right now that we have? How do we look at different majors? There are some majors that are probably more um, more prone to being able to teach virtually versus others. So are there are there ways that we could we could leverage that? So you know, maybe it's not, maybe it's not tier one versus tier two, but it's maybe more around the majors and the specialty schools around how they, how they focus their learning based on the specific, you know, level of study that some of the students are doing. Yeah, I think my initial uh, hope or plan for this, where it would all be back to normal in a couple months, uh, I think one thing's for sure, that won't, that's not going to work, right? No, I mean, I, and again, I think, um, I think even, I mean, look, the, the vaccines are, the vaccine program is rolling out pretty well right now. And in, uh, in the U S I think the last I saw it was, you know, what 59% of all adults have had at least one vaccination, you know, within the U S in the UK, it's very similar. I think it's 61%, you know, of all, you know, of all adults have had a, at least one vaccination, you know, but the other, the other areas of the world aren't, you know, aren't, they don't have the programs, you know, accelerating at the pace that you see in the U.S. and the U.K. right now. So, you know, I think the challenge of, you know, moving students across is still going to to face us. But even, you know, even after the pandemic is over, you know, it, there's a lot of people not even knowing what's next. So how do we how do we approach it and how do we start thinking about it now so that um, so that we're ready for it? And, and to go back to one of our previous comments, this is something that needed to happen anyway, so it's kind of good, uh, but under the circumstance, uh, I guess we'll take the acceleration, um, especially in our industry, um, probably could have done it without having to go this way, but that, that's what's happening. And, and just to take your numbers real quick, uh, I think I heard something this morning on the way into work, 25% of all uh, Americans have had the vaccine at this point, and that took into account uh, children as well as uh, college students and young adults. Uh, people that maybe we haven't put in that adult category yet, but uh, 25%, I mean, that's, that, that's, that's a start, I guess. Uh, and hopefully that's, you know, going to lead to at least a slowdown across the spread. Um, have we covered this topic here, uh, how to create a consistent on-campus versus off-site experience, or is there something else that this group, Ben and Bill included, uh, would like to kind of bring up on, on how that is going to play out, they think? I think from my perspective, you know, I think we, we, we've touched on it. I don't think we fully covered it. You know, the, the, the tricky piece I think is going to be how we, I think we've figured out now how we can do virtual learning, you know, from a higher education perspective and I, we can do onsite learning, you know, just fine. How do we, how do we maintain fairness across all parties or all students, you know, for those students who want to attend a certain university that has a, uh, an on-site program or a virtual program or a hybrid program, but how do we create, you know, the same level of experience across, across it all? I don't think we have the answer to that just yet. You know, it's always, think about the conference calls that we were on a couple of years ago. You know, whenever you were in the, in the, when you were in the conference room, you know, you would have, you know, the side conversations. And if you were, you know, one of the people who were on the phone, you know, it was very difficult to follow. So yeah. I, I think that's something that we need to, we need to consider. I mean, even if, you know, you know, perhaps, yeah, I guess it's a, it's a simple way to look at it, but if the, the teacher, you know, would be able to, you know, how, how could the professor or the teacher be able to 
interact with the students who are virtual and we interact with the students that are that are on site. I think that's the piece that's really mi missing just to what what we were talking about earlier. You know, one of the things that I have loved about what's happened during the pandemic, the use of webcams have gone has gone way up. Uh, in fact, maybe even still now, you can hardly buy a decent webcam. Uh, they're so hard to come come by. But, you know, that's not enough. Right. It's it's like you were saying, usually it's 80, 90 percent of the people are in the room and there's a few that aren't and they kind of feel left out. Uh, there's there's a lot to do with with being in front of each other, not only just from the. Um, the benefit of getting more content across, but just the the social interaction and what might happen by by having that interaction. Yeah, no, I agree with that. Even being able to read body language, you know, in terms, oh. I mean, we can do it a little bit, you know, on video, but um, still, you know, it's it, it's easier to do it in person, and you're not learning that that piece while you're uh, while you're on a webcam. And some of that too, for the person with the body language, like me, quite often in one of my team meetings, I'm smacking my head and rubbing my eyes and going, oh my gosh. And, and because I'm on webcam and not in front of the person, uh, I forget. And uh, that's you know, good and bad. Um, it, it, it is good and bad. But when you actually think of it, you know, a lot of times we would do conference calls without being on webcams. So now we yeah. actually see each other a lot more, you know, in terms of, um, in terms of some of these conferences and some of these meetings, typically we would just have a phone call you know, now we're doing, now we're doing teams, we're doing, you know, Zoom, we're doing, you know, FaceTime, whatever, whatever mechanism we can have. We're seeing each other a lot more, I think. So Mark, I want to hand this over to Bill and Ben to ask any additional questions or make comments, but is this creating a, um, is this leveling the playing field or creating a larger gap between the haves and have nots when we throw in the technology element? I mean, I, you want me, I'll, I'll let Ben and I've been talking a lot. Of, I'll pass it over to Ben well, and Bill and then we'll add some color commentary. Let's have your answer and then we'll have them chime in. I'm sure they'll have a thought on this. What, what I'll say, what I'll say is it's, and again, you, you mentioned it earlier. I'm a bit of a consultant. So I, I always have that. Well, it depends. And I always have disclaimers and everything I say, but um, I, I think it absolutely has the propensity to, uh, to drive a disparity between the haves and haves nots. And that, that's what we're talking about here within this portion you know, of the, of the blog is around, you know, not everyone has, you know, immediate accessibility to, uh, to technology. There is a, you know, uh, there is an aspect of that that's important. And there, there is a piece of it where, you know, some of the universities who didn't have the, um, you know, the technical capabilities, you know, they basically, you know, what were they going to do at that point, you know, from a school perspective, you know, during this, uh, you know, during this time. And, and again, we're just we're talking higher ed right now. You know, if you think about this in the primary and secondary, you know, perspective, there are a lot of students who don't have access to iPads or laptops or or phones, and and how do they learn? You know, I think that there, there's that aspect to it too. So I, I think it it has the propensity to do that. You know, one of the um, you know one of the things that you know I'm I'm trying to drive drive home here is that we need to talk about it now. You know, who's responsible for ensuring that the uh, that the technology is available for, you know, for the students? Is it relying to, is it incumbent upon the parent to, to ensure it? Is it this, the university to do it? Is it the government to do it? You know, what are the, um, you know, what are the areas of, uh, of thought around there? One of the, one of the things that just came out in the, uh, in the Scottish government is that they are looking at doing this type of learning, you know, throughout all of, uh, all of Scotland. And they're starting to talk about, you know, what type of, uh, you know, what type of, uh, laptops and devices and, and, uh, you know, netbooks can people have, you know, or students have in order to, uh, in order to learn. Bill thoughts on this? 
Yeah, I know that in particular where I live, when you look at secondary, primary and secondary, this was a big question because the county we live in is rather diverse. There are pockets of it that are very affluent and pockets that are not. Um, and there was a lot of discussion about how, not just how we get um, devices to users, but how we get even get internet access or network access to these folks. And particularly for students that were in more rural sections of the county. And I would imagine this is the same in other countries like the UK and Scotland and so forth, where they have very diverse, very um, very remote areas that may not have as 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 strong an access control access ability to get into you know to get into a remote connection or what have you. So I, I think that's it's, it's more than devices; it's also the networks. Um, and then of course I have you know I have uh, nieces and nephews that are in universities all over the country and and. I've, I've, I found it interesting that they they had them back on campus, but working from their dorm rooms. So I think we need to ultimately that that needs to be worked out in terms of funding and how how if they're not getting the full experience, so they pay the full tuition. Those types of things that universities are really having to grapple with now. Uh, parents complaining about those those sorts of things, and I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, Mark, um, <clears throat> or not. But um, that that's just those are just kind of some of the random thoughts I've had about this 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 portion. Ben, you want to chime in? Yeah, I mean, for me, it's been real interesting because I'm beginning to think to myself that this might be a responsibility of the education system. Um, I was sitting here, you know, doing a little bit of research on Starlink, and I was wondering to myself, you know, if if the education system did have a population, like I, I'm in a similar situation with Bill where you know, I live in a, a fairly rural county, but there are suburbs in this county. So when our schools went remote, we had the same situation. And what our county did was they put mobile internet stations near the kids so that they could at least get, you know, close to service. We didn't have a device problem. We had what Bill mentions as a service problem. So I just wonder with technology like Starlink coming down the pipe and more accessibility to you know, mobile internet, will that then shift to where that's the responsibility of the education system to provide these, you know, more rural, um, you know, uh, less fortunate kids, the ability to, you know, I'm not sure, you know, where will that lie as we move forward with, with trying to get accessibility for all is where those responsibilities for some of those things lie. The technology's coming. Who's going to have to provide it? Yeah. So yeah, guys, I do good. want to take a moment for a shameless plug here. For our nonprofit that I've helped start with my family and others, uh, Computers for Community. And what we do is we take older computers and repurpose them with a Google operating system to try to make the device uh, something that's not a challenge. We can give those away by the hundreds, by the thousands. Uh, I'm sure you guys know you probably have several laptops or computers sitting around at home that could be reused for something like an efficient operating system on it. And what our goal there is to free up money to pay for the, the network portion if we can make the device the device free. This is actually a good point for the, uh, for the next topic, like the, the, the next part of this blog around sustainability. So, Absolutely. you know, what, what, what you're doing there is, is amazing, Andy. I, I didn't even know about that, but that's, that's awesome. Um, we, we've thought about similar things like that within the UK and how we can partner with other organizations. But sustainability right now is becoming a, uh, well, it is. I mean, it's a very big talking point, you know, from, you know, all large corporations in terms of what they can do to help 
to help provide a uh, you know a better platform for sustainability. And one of the uh, you know one of the areas is a lot of the older equipment. You know, rather than the older equipment ending up in landfill, which the majority of them do right now, you know, what else can you do with it? You know, are there other you know better places for for corporations to send some of their some of their older equipment? You know, there's a lot of refreshes that are happening on a regular basis, especially now with the pandemic, in terms of um, in terms of having more secure you know, computers to be working off of, you know, what can we do around those sites? So the whole, the whole concept of sustainability also comes into play here, you know, because you can, you can take some of these older devices, you know, send them out to an organization like yourself, and then you can be able to push those on to those students who, who need it. You know, I, I, I didn't make any comments on the, uh, you know, on the, on the network piece. I think in, you know, the, the UK is a, is a smaller area than, than the US. So, you know that while there are you know network issues, you know the, I think they're more predominant in uh, in the U.S. and you'll see in the in the U.K. This is a great slide. Go back to that, Andy. Yeah, um, where you were showing about the waste. Yeah, I think that's really interesting right there. Yeah, Mark, I, I'm I'm actually getting Citrix involved. I'll I'll follow with you after this. It sounds like yeah. you understand our plight here. Getting technology into the hands of people who need it. it might be a might be a household that has one decent computer. What if I can get every kid in the household or every person in the household a free Google-based usable device, uh, and at the same time keep it out of the landfill? It's estimated there are six million laptops in New York City alone, sitting in desk drawers somewhere. I mean that, that that's an amazing that's amazing and that's 2011 through 2013. Yeah, this is know, much can, older. Yeah, yeah can, can, can you imagine what it's like right now, given what we're going through the pandemic? So it's an absolutely, mm. it's a great initiative. Well done. Yeah. All right, uh, let's go to the last section I think here, and that's parallel in the workspace. And I'll I'll tell you guys what I, as the father of four kids, am telling my kids. You know, I've always told them to be somewhat out there, put themselves out there, be social, even when it doesn't feel comfortable, be social. Uh, and I'm telling them now that the pandemic's happened to double down on being social, double down on putting yourself out there, because unfortunately, the reclusiveness of what's happened to people over the last 12 months is only going to make them more introverted. Now's the time to differentiate yourself more. Uh, and I think part of what you're covering here, Mark, is, is how to make the higher education and the technology and the use cases and the, and the surviving the pandemic and making it, making it functional. Uh, how do we make that so where this will make sense as they graduate and move into the next phase of life, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think there's, there's a number of areas, you know, that, that we can think about. This is, you know, while, while it's incredibly difficult for our kids to go through you know, what they're doing right now. They don't even understand what's happening, you know, right now, pretty much depends on the age of them, right? I got a five and a nine-year-old and my nine-year-old understands it, but my five-year-old doesn't. But the the thing that we have to remember too, is the skills they're picking up right now, you know, around, around technology is something they probably wouldn't have picked up for a few more years. So what we need to do there is really double down on some of those skills. You know, one of the, you know, one of the things that, you know, I, I see them doing is around some of the applications that they're using, you know, virtually, you know, those applications, you know, didn't exist last year, you know, they were doing a lot of the, a lot of the, you know, homework on, on pieces of paper and pencils and pens. And now I see them using, you know, a stylus and an application and, and, uh, you know, figuring out how to, uh, how to research, you know, I see a lot of research happening right now. My son's using PowerPoint, he's building presentations, a lot of skill sets are being built right now that they could actually leverage as they move move further on, and, and I think that's something we need to think about. And I think that's something we need to you know evolve. You know, we talk about 
you know, this article is primarily around higher ed and some of the skill set that students are, are building. And there, there's a big piece around when you go into the workforce, you know, being able to collaborate, uh, collaborate globally and collaborate virtually and collaborate with multiple different organizations is something you have to pick up. They're, they're having to pick that up now in, um, in higher ed because they're doing a lot of this stuff virtually. And how do I collaborate or how do I team with somebody who's not sitting right next to me? How do I work with somebody virtually? We have to do that, you know, in the real world all the time. You know, this is something they're picking up now in, in college, which is, which is amazing. And then if you think about primary and secondary, you know, they're picking up, you know, how to use technology at a much earlier age, you know, than they would have been if the pandemic wouldn't have occurred. So I think there's, there's areas like that that we have to hone in on and, and continue to evolve and, and then ask the question, is that what we really should be doing with education so that we can prepare ourselves a little bit better? And does it make sense for us to start to, you know, change the model of education? And really that, that was the whole intention of the blog is to get, is to get people thinking about that. Like what is, what is education in 2035 look like? Is it going to be the same, you know, or is it going to be, you know, a little bit different? I, I think based on what we've seen over the past couple of years or the past year, you know, it has to be different. There's no doubt that the pandemic is going to start. I'm trying to pull an audible here and show you guys on the screen something I experienced while I was on vacation. Uh, my daughter pulls up her OneNote uh, and shows me what she's doing in OneNote now that she's a remote student. It was amazing to watch her take notes uh, on a laptop or on her, on her iPad with a stylus. I mean, that has, I mean, I literally wanted to spin off a consulting firm right then and there for her to go teach people how to do that. It was extremely extremely impressive and valuable for her future to learn how to take electronic notes, which I, as a 45 year old man, can't do. I just, it's just not comfortable. It's not natural for me. They're, they're learning a lot of it from scratch right now, which is, uh, which is really interesting. You know, when we were coming up and we were probably your daughter's age, you know, the internet was still, was still coming alive and we were all trying to figure out how to use the internet. We taught ourselves how, how to use it. You know, now they're going through the same piece, you know, the Internet, you know, their children of the Internet, you know, but all of these new applications that we kind of struggle with, you know, I still, you know, I've got I've got plenty of notebooks laying around the house. I've got, you know, four different four different notebooks that I use for different things. And I, I wish I could get to that point where I could use uh, where I could use one note and styluses on a regular basis because it's a lot easier to to use search functions when you're looking for something rather than flipping through pages. Yeah, it makes a huge difference. Bill, Ben, thoughts on this topic? No, I, I completely agree. I think that we're going to see a change, and I think to your point, Mark, that uh, and Andy, the, uh, the the fact that that the younger kids, the ones that are that are coming through now, are having to kind of kind of learn it on their own as they go, uh, ultimately will benefit them uh, because they'll be the they'll be the, the the true digital natives, kind of by 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 necessity, um, which will carry over into, I think, a lot more innovation, hopefully, and, and a lot more uh, maturity when it comes to technology as they move into the, the higher ed space. Can, can you guys see my screen now? Yes. Yeah. That, that's my yeah. daughter's note, which is 10 times better than I could ever do on a piece of paper. Yeah. It's a, no, yeah, exactly. Wow. That's great. All right, guys. Um, ben, any additional thoughts on this part of it? Oh, I think we're I think we're in transition. I mean, I, I definitely see the future being very interesting. I will do a shameless plug for Citrix. I think Citrix can help a lot of higher education uh, 
companies out there, man. I think that we've got the tools to create this seamless environment that's being talked about here to make it where you can go from on-prem to off-prem to mobile to and be able to access all that. I see I see our workspace app being uh, at the center of all this and being a, and then being able to help aggregate all that and, and bring some, you know, some clarity to some of this. But no, I applaud this effort. I just think it's wild how what's going on in education is similar to what's going on in business uh, and what's going on in life. You know, I, I've had to go to OneNote during uh, the pandemic because I couldn't keep up with my notebooks anymore. To Mark's point, it got hard to find things and research. So one of my colleagues showed me one note. I got into that. Uh, I just see the future being very different for schools. I'm very happy for people. Some of it's sad, though, because I go back to my first year in college, and I could not have imagined starting your college career off in a pandemic year, man. What a, what a trip that should, would have had to have been. Yeah, that's that's the sad part. And, you know, I, being a little um, selfish here, I got my kids going off to college, major university here in a couple of months. I I hope they get that first year college experience. I I uh, I uh, you know, laugh and think about my first year college experience and some of the good things I did, some of the bad things I did and some of the bad things I did. I, I'd never regret and take back. It was uh, it was part of the experience. That's right. Yeah. Well, Mark, thanks for joining us. Uh, we'll keep an eye out for future blogs and have you back on. Sounds good. I, I should have another one coming up in a few weeks, three or four weeks. But um, if I do, I'll definitely you'll see it. And uh, maybe we'll do this again. How much uh, how much longer are you planning to live in the UK? Is this a long term move or just a temporary thing? Uh, no, right now it's uh, it's an open uh, it's an open move. So I only have got one way ticket to uh, to the UK leaving in two weeks. I'm in Georgia right now. I we joke around. This is not a sauna. I just uh, every um, every wall I have in this house is this wood board. So Two weeks yeah. from now, I'll have a different. Uh, I'll have a different background. Okay. All right. Sounds good. Appreciate you joining us. You got. It. Thanks right. for having me. Thanks, guys. All right. Bye.